0: Are you someone who enjoys a good glass of wine but is never sure just what to get? Indulge your inner enophile and take the guesswork out of wine by signing up for the National Review Wine Club. All of our wines are selected by a team with more than 150 years of collective experience buying, judging and making wine. We weed through the thousands of wines out there to select the very best of the best and deliver it straight to your door, all at an unbeatable price. Not only that, the Wine Club is also a great way to support our valuable conservative journalism here at National Review. A portion of every order goes to helping us grow our team and editorial impact. And there's no time better than today. Our introductory special delivers four of our hand-selected wines straight to your door, for only 29.99. So head over to nationalreviewwineclub.com today and get ready to kick back with an exquisite bottle of wine in the comfort of your own home.
1: Israel deals for hostages, the Irish consider a hate speech law, and is Biden's terrible polling reel. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah, Noah Rothman, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brandon Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National You podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Made in Bethlehem College and Break Fast. More about all of them. In due course, if for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said Anything. So before we get into it in earnest, let's hear a, a little bit about our first sponsor, Made-In Cookware. Made-In has spoken to a lot of people who use their cookware, and they found that people consistently say two things. They can feel the difference when using Made-In products, and they can taste a difference in their cooking. Born from a 100-year family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply, Made-In works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware For restaurant and home kitchens alike, discover your best dinners ahead with artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware. Top professional chefs use Made In, including Tom Colicchio, Brooke Williamson, Grant Acticus, Stephanie Izzard, and many, many more. Made In's award-winning non-stick cookware has a double-layer professional-grade non-stick coating. Made in stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat Distribution. Maiden's carbon steel cookware can handle up to 1200 degrees and is perfect for cooking on your stove, grill, or even an open flame. Plus, they have an extensive collection of knives, bakeware, glassware, plateware, and more. We found this all to be true in the Lowry kitchen. Our Maiden pans are great to handle. They cook evenly and, very, very importantly, they are easy to clean. So, Maiden gets our highest recommendation and, especially, my wife's recommendation. And right now, Editors, listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Made In. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash editors. Please check it out. I assure you, you will not regret it. So, Noah, we have a tenuous pause in the fighting in Gaza. Hamas has decided to shell out some of these hostages. This was the point of taking the hostages in the first place to have a, a chip to use to uh, potentially stay Israel's hand, which they have done at least temporarily in exchange for several dozen women and children. What do you make of it?
2: Uh, I think it's a trap. I think this is the elementary logic of hostage taking. This is why you take hostages in the first place. We are. It's great to see these young children especially, um, but anybody who's been in the custody of this terroristic death cult for the last month and a half to be released. Everybody celebrates that. The problem with it is that they're, A, Hamas is violating the terms. I'll get to that in a second. But B, they're dangling future releases in exchange for the extension of this ceasefire and gradually the will to support Israel's just and necessary war to liquidate and neutralize Hamas as a governing entity of Gaza is abating rather quickly. The Biden administration is deeply conflicted over this. It is getting a lot of pressure from a very small but loud minority on its left flank to maximally de-conflict, which is the word that I heard out of this White House this morning, this conflict. Um, Hamas is violating the terms of this deal. They're not allowing the International Red Cross, which is a complicit organization. To, view, uh, to meet with some of these uh, hostages who remain hostages, which was part of the Arisha initial, initial terms. And this morning there was an IED attack on uh, Israeli defense forces culminating in fire exchanged between I, uh, IDF and Hamas militants or Palestinian Islamic Jihad militants. We don't know exactly. Nevertheless, the shooting has resumed, and it's incumbent on Israel to respond. The Israeli mission is not over here. And Hamas will use the leverage that it has in the form of these human shields and hostages that it has taken in order to uh, impose moral and emotional blackmail on the rest of the world to compel Israel to back down. I don't think Israel's going to listen just because of the horror that was executed on 10-7 was something that has precluded the kind of uh, sensitivity to international pressure that Israel usually succumbs to. But that's it. We're just talking about the will to resist an increasing growing discomfort with Israel's response to the Ten Seven massacre.
1: So Noah, do you have a preferred policy here? Would you, I know it sounds cold blooded, but would you effectively write off the hostages or, or, you know, see what hostages you can save in the course of, of the ongoing military operation? Or, or what would you do, uh, get, given your belief that this is a of trap? Of course not. I mean, that's, not this is
2: the bedeviling problem here that Israel is confronted with. It's, Mission to neutralize Hamas and to save the hostages are not distinct. They are the same mission. It is the distinction that is being drawn by people who I believe would prefer that this conflict never happen or at least end as soon as humanly possible to say that these hostages are in the line of fire and there's certain things that Israel can and cannot do as a result. Uh, the hostages who are in Hamas's custody now are a problem militarily, operationally. They limit Israel's capacity to do what it wants to do, to do what it needs to do. But the hostages in the future are also a concern. The hostages that will be taken by Hamas, the the Israelis who will be executed by Hamas, loom just as large over the Israeli psyche. So it's not as though we're talking about a single incident here. We're talking about hostage taking into into the indefinite future, And that changes the calculation for the IDF in Jerusalem here. It's not just talking about these civilians in Hamas's custody. It's all the civilians who will in the future be held hostage to Hamas so they can do exactly what they did in 10-7 over and over and over again, and the cycle repeats.
1: So MBD, I entirely take Noah's points, but as I've said in prior such situations, I'm just, uh, I'm kind of soft on hostages. I just think it's it's such a human drive to get your your people back, and there, there's a lot of pressure, understandably, on the Israeli government. Marches by these these families. I mean, I, I can't. Every time one of these families is on TV, I I turn the sound down or, or turn it off. I, I just can't bear it. It's so heartrending. And if you have the the opportunity to get a lot of them, and the problem, you know, to, to Noah's point, is not all of them, and they'll they'll keep dribbling them out and, and using this to Gain uh, pauses in the fighting that they they can use to to rearm and to uh, refortify themselves. Um, you know it's it's costly to the the Israeli military operations, but I think it's just hard. It's really hard as a practical matter to say no. Of course, it's hard to say no,
3: but it, it does allow uh, for Hamas to manipulate through the release of hostages, right? Um, and you've seen the their propagandists try to talk about how well hostages were treated even as hamas is selecting hostages uh in a way that manipulates international pressure on israel right you know either delaying the release of americans so that americans are constantly pressing for an extension of the ceasefire um or you know or so on you know these are you know, this is the advantage that I think Noah was talking about that Hamas gets from using hostages and and weaponizing the Jewish commitment to ransoming hostages against Israel itself. On on the other side of it, though, I mean, it is important that these hostages are released uh, for their health and their safety. Um, And at the same time, you know, uh, to me, just on the surface level, I mean, I'm obviously not involved in these negotiations. Um, but given that previous hostage deals with Hamas have been, you know, along the lines of Israel gets one soldier and has to release over a thousand convicted criminals um, in response, um, you know, the deal that they're getting now, which is more like a three to one Deal makes it look to me, at least, like perhaps the IDF has Hamas on the back foot. Um, And that, um, you know, I've heard and read some sources suggesting that even IDF commanders, you know, advising the Israeli government, suggested that, you know, the IDF was very much in control of its operation and could use the pause. As uh, as well as a time to refresh and to prepare for what could be a, a really terrible final siege in the south of Gaza.
1: Yeah, so that's the glass half full scenario. This is this is Hamas cry, crying uh, uh, uncle, at least in in some form or another. But Charlie, one of the irritating things about the the coverage is th- this kind of both sidism. You know, is yeah. Israel's. Israel holding up to its end of the deal. How many, uh, you know, humanitarian trucks have they let in? Where you have this ghoulish terrorist force that's kidnapped and abused women and, and children um, as a as a kind of an equal negotiating par- partner. It's, it's it's disgraceful. I'm glad you asked me this question because I was
0: going to answer it even if you didn't. This is the necessary pre. Text. This is the necessary introduction, the necessary context here that gets forgotten because we're so zoomed in now. The news stories talk about the negotiations. They talk about deals. Well, in the American context, those things are neutral, if not positive, because in most circumstances, people who engage in deals are equal. The foundation of our society is voluntary, mutual cooperation based upon negotiations. And so when we hear two sides debating, we give it a positive imprimatur. You have to zoom out here and look at what it is that's being debated. We don't have two entities that have come to the table with smiles on their faces. The people that Israel is trying to release are innocent civilians who on the morning of October 7th were living in their sovereign nation and were stolen out of that sovereign nation by a terrorist group. The people that Hamas wants back are, by and large, violent terrorists. And to make matters worse, there's a multiplier on the Hamas side. For every one person Israel wants, Hamas requests three, four. As Michael points out, there have been instances in the past where one Israeli soldier has been exchanged for up to 100 or 1,000 Hamas prisoners. I think it's imperative to remind people of this. This did not just happen. This is the product of an abomination. They're not debating where the line between their two countries is. They're not debating who pays what in the water bill. They're not debating access to a freshwater port. They're not even engaged in a dispute of the sort you might see between Florida and Georgia or California and Oregon over minerals or some such. The only reason this has happened in the first place is because Hamas decided to go in there and steal people, women, children, families. There are babies who've been born in captivity. And yet I agree. I do read the newspapers in the morning and I, and I think we've forgotten that context it it reads as if it's a dispute between ford and the united auto workers over the increase in pay over the next few years and it's not i hope i hope that michael is right and that the this is a sign of israeli confidence in its mission, and that Noah is right, and that this process is part of the same objective, which is to destroy Hamas and try as far as one is possible to to move back to the status quo ante.
1: Yeah, I would I would say what Hamas has done is is medieval, but very often what would happen in clashing medieval armies is that you you'd capture other fighters, you know, and then you put a, put put the guy in a castle and say we need five hundred pieces of gold. You know, but this uh, um, the grabbing of the women and children sleeping in their beds is just—it's just, it's just uh, uh, too horrible for words. So Noah ask a question to you: Israel will, whenever this might be, will restart its offensive as robustly as it was going prior to this pause in the fighting? Yes or no?
2: I would say yes. If we were to take the statements from the Israeli government at face value, it'll be, according to Defense Minister Galant, it'll be, um, they will resume uh, the offensive and it will be as robust, if not more, than the first stage of this campaign. And uh, it has to be. They have no choice. Not only have they encircled Gaza, but they have to move into Gaza proper, Gaza City proper, neutralize whatever... Uh, remaining Hamas regime uh, elements there are, and then move down into Yunis in the south, which is a a Hamas stronghold, and that is going to be a slog. And they have no choice but to move on with this campaign. So yes, they will resume fighting, they will do so uh, with the condemnation to various degrees of intensity from the international community. Embedip?
3: Yeah, I expect Israel to... um even potentially increase or intensify its military effort uh, as it's learned a lot of lessons and'll we'll have time to incorporate them operationally during this pause. Um, and and again because I think that the the, the ratios of the um, these hostage swaps look like um, Israel is is uh, doing a mighty job dismantling Hamas. And Hamas knows it and is just playing out for time.
0: Charlie? I agree with Mike. I also think that Israel has now done the pause part of this strategy, and it has to get on with the destruction part of the strategy.
1: I'll make it unanimous. The answer is yes. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor, Bethlehem College, where students study the great books in light of the greatest book for the sake of the Great Commission. Trajectories of life are being set for young men and women in the pivotal period between the ages of 18 and 25. At Bethlehem College, students wrestle with these realities, not in a 200-person classroom, but in a 200-person college. Bethlehem College is not a Bible college, but everything in the academic program is saturated with the Bible. The school's chancellor, John Piper, said recently that when he looked at the upcoming generation of students, He observed that their God is too small and their reading is too passive. So Bethlehem's aims are to train students in assiduous attentiveness in all their reading, whether reading their Bible or whether they are reading the world. Bethlehem calls this approach education in serious joy and delivers it at a price that ranks as one of the lowest tuition rates in American Christian higher education, only about $7,500 a year. Bethlehem College, education in serious joy. To apply or request more information, visit bcsmn.edu slash editors. That's bcsmn.edu slash editors. Please check it out. So MBD, a lot of attention lately to this proposed hate speech law in Ireland in response to a riot, a, a alleged far-right riot and the rioting will stop when this law is passed, which, at least in, in one of its iterations, I, I think it's may perhaps being revised as we speak, would have forbidden people, made it illegal to have offending memes, just offending memes on your phone. So you wouldn't have had to create the meme. You wouldn't have had to say anything about it or write anything about it. You could just, it could just be in your possession and you could run afoul of this uh, law.
3: Yeah, it is. Um, it's an astonishing thing. So, uh, just I'll just give a brief bit of background, which is that um, Ireland has um, a tremendous housing crisis um, that has been even driving some natives to emigrate, which is the traditional Irish answer when you find it difficult to make your your way, and you're living in Ireland. You you know go off to Australia, Western Canada, or the United States, or to London um and that's the traditional irish answer but what's new is that in the last decade ireland is an immigrant accepting country for the first time in its history and in fact in the last year uh, demographers estimate that they've accepted over 145,000 uh immigrants now proportionally to america that would be like accepting over nine million immigrants in a single year um and, uh, you know, so it's a, it's an absolutely, like, gargantuan number when you consider how small the Irish country is. And um, for the past year, there have been protests bubbling across the entire country when, um, you know, a, a a refugee center is set up and they say, okay, we're going to put Ukrainians here. And then it's filled up with working age men from Africa or when the government says, okay, well we need to find more space for Ukrainian refugees. We're going to put 950 Ukrainian refugees in a town of 100 Irish people. Um, You know, those, that has brought up a lot of peaceful protests. What happened last week was an Algerian man uh, and a naturalized citizen began stabbing children in the city center of Dublin. And then that kicked off a riot in response. Uh, A lot of it seemed like opportunistic rioting, you know, people just looting footlockers is not a, a really a, a legible political statement. <laughs> um, but it caused the government to revive this hate speech law. And and you're right. It, it criminalizes even the possession of speech. And not only that, it even has the presumption of guilt. Um, the person shall be presumed until the contrary is proved to have been in possession of the materials in contravention of the law. Um, uh, the, the law defines hate tautologically. Hate is hatred uh, of a group based on their, or a person based on their protected characteristics. Um, and, uh, you know, it's obviously an attempt by the government to head off and, and potentially criminalize criticism of its own uh, immigration and refugee policies, which are not, um, you know, it, it's very hard to, differ, to to ascertain the popularity of these policies, um, especially with the threat of these kinds of laws. Now, Ireland, I have to say, like, Irish society is, is not as exercised about this law as, you know, it's been Elon Musk and outsiders who have drawn a lot, put a lot of attention onto it. Elon Musk, because, of course, he runs Twitter, which has a stake in Ireland and, and in the business running in Ireland. Um, but, um, you know, Ireland has a tradition of moralizing censorship in its, in its laws. It used to celebrate that it was throwing off all of those forms of censorship, but as a, as a new orthodoxy comes into place, I guess, uh, some people are willing to give the government good faith. I just think the law is drawn up in such a a uh, capricious way that it, it would it would be inherently unjust to, to begin enforcing it as it's written
1: yeah I loved what you wrote about this that Ireland's always been governed by a, a clerical class it used to be priests now it's the media has also had out, outsiders traditionally expropriating its wealth it used to be the English now it's Silicon Valley <laughs> so so Charlie the possession of speech again to to Go back to medieval times. This is like, you know, ha- having a, uh, a proto-Protestant tract, you know, prior to the the, the Reformation the f- found on your body or, or secreted in, in your house somewhere or in a totalitarian society behind the Iron Curtain. You have, have Smazdat that uh, is going to get you in trouble. I mean, wh- what does it mean to possess speech? This is...
0: A problem for more than just the right to free expression. It's also a problem for the right to be free of unreasonable search and seizures. This often happens in countries that don't have steadfastly protected individual rights. In England, for example, if you own a shotgun, you give up what in America would be protected by the Fourth Amendment to the police who are allowed to come into your home at any time and make sure that you're storing your weapon in the way that the government has prescribed. In Ireland, in order to enforce what in America would be a flagrantly unconstitutional violation of the First Amendment, the law reaches in to your personal possessions in a way that would also be illegal and culturally unpopular. I think that this highlights the difference between the way that Americans conceive of rights and have protected them legally and the way that the rest of the world does. I saw some ghastly woman in the Irish Senate on YouTube yesterday saying, well, of course, we all have rights, and rights are important, but they have to be balanced with the community Have to be balanced with public safety, public interest. No, they don't. It is true that at the absolute bleeding edge, governments in the United States do impose some restrictions, but they are so far over the line as to ensure that the right is still intact. If you look, for example, at the controlling decision around the criminalization of speech, Brandenburg v. Ohio. It permits and protects sedition. The only point at which you can be arrested in this country and prosecuted for speaking is if your speech can be demonstrated to be insightful such that it will create another crime. And that's a high bar. If you look at the actual facts of the case in Brandenburg, In any other country in the world, the Brandenburg case would have led to a prosecution. So I think she's wrong. I don't think that that's how we treat rights. Sometimes you hear people in the United States say, well, we already restrict this. Or if you can restrict a right at the extremes, then you can restrict it in any way you want to. But that is simply not how American law works. We don't do that, we do privilege individual rights, especially those that are protected within our constitution. When that senator says that she intends to balance rights with the public good, as uh, casually, in as blasé a way as she does, she is describing a privilege. That is what the Irish have, and always have had for that matter, a privilege privilege that can be limited or revoked according to the whims of the government or the wishes of parliament. The Irish are allowed to speak, are allowed to communicate, only insofar as their politicians wish to indulge it. That's true in England. It's true in France and Germany and India and Australia And the only place that it is not true in the entire world is America. God bless America. Noah.
2: I can't speak to the Irish social compact in the way Michael can, and I uh, agree with what Charlie has said. Uh, I will add that I think it's the, the likely capricious enforcement of this law, if it were to become law, is probably in evidence in the way in which Irish lawmakers have talked about Israel since ten seven, Would this law apply to Sinn Féin lawmakers, for example, who said Israel has created ISIS, that Hitler was a pawn of the Rothschilds, that the Israeli embassy staff are akin to monkeys? I'm taking this from the Jerusalem Post. Would it apply to the Muslim protesters at the uh, Dublin University who said, quote, we will repeat what happened on 10 I suspect not because I suspect that this is in line with what policymakers want, which is to distract from the consequences of their own policies. In the United States, that's what disinformation campaigns, media literacy campaigns are designed to do. They're designed to um, mitigate the effects of their own fatuous efforts to uh, promote political narratives that conflict with the uh, a proper understanding of uh, an egalitarian social compact in the United States where they promote the ideals that are promote ideals that are entirely subjective the notion that my truth is as valid as the truth the idea that colleges should promote and promulgate the notion that activism is as worthwhile in activity a collegiate activity as study uh, the notion Uh, promoted by journalists that they should uh, abandon the pursuit of objectivity, which is itself unattainable, and instead uh, replace it with the pursuit of moral clarity, which just means putting a finger on the scale, mangling the facts of this case or the other in order to incept a narrative into impressionable minds and mobilize those people into a vanguard. That is what these projects are about creating this this activism on the streets and then when they get activism on the streets and it's and it reflects poorly on precisely the kind of policies that they've been promoting then they say oh this is all disinformation everybody's mind has been poisoned by the internet and elon musk or what have you look inward a lot of this has a lot to do with what you have pursued and what you have uh, the you know the seeds that you have sown coming to full flower and it's just an, you know, it strikes me as just an effort to uh, distract from and, um, and and inoculate themselves against criticism that is ter- perfectly valid and, and deserved.
1: So, MBD, next question to you: How alarmed are you by this draft Irish law in terms of what might be coming here to the United States sooner or later? Very, it's coming, it's coming. This is just a, a forerunner, the way other, other things have been. Somewhat or not at all. This is a, a European problem. This is a, a problem that countries have that don't have a first amendment.
3: Uh, I'm somewhat alarmed. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worried that, um, our, I think our legal tradition of the first amendment is as secure as it's ever been. Um, uh, right now, given the, the state of the judiciary Um, and just the state of, of American civil society, but in the digital age, you know, what we're seeing is a splitting of the world into spheres of influence, um, where Russia has its internet, China has its internet, and then the Western world has America's internet and we share, you know, our social networks and, and stuff with the Europeans And their laws increasingly affect how those networks operate and the norms around them. So we're not entirely immune, um, I think, uh, from the downward effect of European laws uh, on our institutions. Um, So I am concerned, and I'm concerned just generally. I mean, you know, uh, the Irish are an English-speaking people. They are part of our civilization. They are not, um, you know, they are not... They're more like cousins than um, foreigners. And so, you know, if this impulse is in them, it's not
1: mm-hmm. it's not
3: unimaginable. It could grow here someday.
1: Charlie, level of alarm
0: varies somewhat. Not at all. Somewhat. In that there's a paradox in the United States at the moment. As Michael noted, free speech has perhaps never been better protected legally in the history of America. But culturally, it is not in good shape. And the polling of young people suggests that it is going to be a challenge to instill in them the level of respect for the First Amendment that, say, the Supreme Court currently has. If that challenge is not met, those people will eventually prevail because they will vote and rise up into positions of authority. Some of them will become judges and lawyers. And if that happens, we could quite easily go back to a diminishment in the First Amendment of the sort that we saw during, say, the Wilson administration or at points in the early 20th century. So I am alarmed by it because what we're seeing in Ireland is what happens when you take the concept of hate speech seriously. This isn't a poorly written law. It's not a poorly conceived law. It doesn't need to be tweaked or altered or amended. This is what hate speech legislation looks like. And if those who want to see that sort of law in America get their way, then we will have that sort of law in America.
1: No,
2: Charlie makes a very good point about um, the threat posed by an upcoming generation that has uh, that regards the First Amendment and free speech generally as having a bad odor about it. But I'm some somewhere between somewhat concerned and not concerned at all. Um, what he describes as a generational project, we are uh, close to the apex of another generational project, which was to replace very activist judiciary. Uh, with one that is far more originalist, and it'll take quite some time to replace that project with another. And it would require quite a lot of ambition and organization on the part of those who uh, want to reduce protections on speech and uh, in law to uh, successfully conquer the judiciary at all levels. So uh, I don't foresee that, Projects being especially successful in the near term, and even in the medium term, uh, because these young adults will have to uh, will have to have these values reinforced over the course of their lives as they get older and, and integrate into society more broadly, and that can have a moderating effect. So I'm a little bit more hopeful that the European Compact won't be imported.
1: Yeah, so I'm with Noah. I'm somewhere in between somewhat and not at all. Somewhat... To MBD's point, this is a virus that is loose in the Western world, and that is very alarming, but not at all because the First Amendment is ultimately a a bulwark against this sort of thing uh, for the foreseeable future. With that, let's hear from our final sponsor of this episode, the BreakFast podcast. Some topics seem inaccessible to the average person. Economics? Quantum mechanics, for instance, even one of the world's most familiar religions, Catholicism, can be confusing at times, even for Catholics. That's why we're excited to announce that the BreakFast podcast has returned with its second season. Faithful listeners of the editors may remember that BreakFast was created after a long dinner when the show's host, Father Brian Graby, told the producers about how the church imbues our everyday lives in ways most people don't even realize. The word breakfast, for example... Comes from Catholics, quote, breaking the fast after morning mass. The show's creators saw the need for a podcast that is engaging and accessible to everyone, for those of any faith or none at all. The first season explored how various foods and drinks, like champagne and sushi, have their roots in the Catholic Church, and it looked at what they can teach us about the faith today. Season two focuses on famous landmarks, like how Central Park reminds us to enjoy the leisure of Sundays and what the Statue of Liberty teaches us about the true meaning of freedom. Each episode is around 20 minutes long. And full of joy and insight, you can download the BreakFast podcast on Apple, Spotify, or the Odyssey app, or anywhere podcasts are found. BreakFast looks to entertain, enlighten, and inspire. Go ahead and please check it out, the BreakFast podcast. So Charlie, we've had this intense debate breakout among Democratic operatives and journalists about what Biden's polling means, how real it is, this abysmal po- polling, a year out from the election. There are the anti-so-called bedwetters who say, look, no big deal. It is a year out from the election. Donald Trump is not formally the the, the Republican nominee yet. And Obama had some worrisome polling in 2011. And then there are others who say, whoa, Come on guys this is uh, this is deeply concerning it's not comparable to where obama was in 2011 yes obama had a uh, a down, down draft during the debt ceiling uh, contention but otherwise he was beating mitt romney at this juncture he was beating a generic republican whereas biden in polling is down by double digits to a generic Republican, your favorite kind of Republican. Of course, we need to get you a, a bumper sticker, Charlie, to stay, uh, yeah. generic Republican 2024. And um, Dean Phillips actually said, look, look at this, guys. This, this guy can't win. This guy can't win against Donald Trump. What do you make of that?
0: I don't think that the Democrats institutionally, and I include in that, the constellation of sycophantic journalists in their orbit are worried enough about Joe Biden. I don't think that they have yet developed the tools to process where they are as a party. Now, Dean Phillips described... Anyone who thinks that Joe Biden is positioned well to beat Trump is delusional. I think that's an overstatement. I still think Trump has an astonishing number of problems. But I don't think that the Democrats have yet comprehended the risk that they're taking. And in fact, I see so many of the same ticks and reflexes that have marked out Democrats' attitudes since Trump rose first in the polls. That is a willingness to blame anyone who suggests that the Democrats aren't dealing with this especially well, to accuse them of equivocation or both-sidesism or anti-anti-Trumpism or what you will, to pretend that they're only saying that because they want to defend Trump or they have a secret crush on Trump. The Democrats are one and one in taking on Trump. The Democrats had a weak candidate in 2016 that they refused to accept was a weak candidate, and they lost. The Democrats won in 2020, in part because they ensured that Bernie Sanders wasn't the nominee, but they only just won, what was it, 44,000 votes in a handful of states that put Joe Biden in the White House. The Democrats did not react to the prospect of a second Trump term in 2020 in the way that their rhetoric would have suggested that they should. They offered pretty much nothing to disaffected Republicans and independents. They persisted with their defund the police line. Joe Biden, toward the end, started talking about packing the Supreme Court. This is not a party that I think has a solid history of reckoning with its own weaknesses or acknowledging that it too has agency. There is an underlying belief in the Democratic Party that because Republicans are responsible for Donald Trump, it is therefore incumbent on them and only them to fix it. Now, Republicans are, of course, responsible for Donald Trump. Republicans picked him in 2016, 2020, they look like they're going to pick him again. That is... They're doing, and they're doing alone. If Republicans wish to get rid of Trump, they could do it. Trump is entirely reliant upon Republican primary voters for his sustenance. But it is simply not the case that Democrats are going to be able or have been able to say, you don't have a choice, therefore you must vote for us, and have that come off. They can't just say, look, it's Trump or it's Hillary. We win, right? And I don't think they're going to be able to say it's Trump or it's Joe Biden in 2024 and win automatically either. I still see them in denial. I still see them unwilling to accept the risk. I still see them unable to grasp how unpopular Joe Biden is, how unpopular his vice president is, which is a big problem, and how unpopular much of the Democratic agenda is, to the point at which they are still trying to take credit for the parts of Biden's record that are the least compelling, as we're seeing with Biden's bizarre habit of pointing to economic news mm-hmm. that the public hates and saying, that's Bidenomics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they're there, Rich. And, and I, I say that not as somebody who thinks Trump is going to win, not as somebody who thinks that Biden is destined to get blown out or anything like that but as someone who is watching the democratic party take an extraordinary risk without seeming
1: to understand what it's
0: doing Mm -hmm.
1: so charlie i forget did you answer this this exit question where you were on when we had this exit question whether trump would win if the election were held today
0: i don't know if i did were held today i can't remember having answered that one i've certainly said in the past that i think think biden's the favorite I think if it were held today, Trump would win the election. Mm -hmm, But can I just quickly explain why? Uh Well, there's two things. First off, Biden really is incredibly unpopular at the moment, and Trump is more popular than Biden is. But over time, Trump is going to be hammered, and people are going to remember why it is that they don't like him. And I do expect to see some sort of parity re-emerge. Uh, which is why it doesn't make a great deal of sense to say, "Well, look at where Trump and Biden are now." I assume we can extrapolate that out till November mm-hmm. next yeah. year. But yeah, if it were held today,
1: clearly Trump would win. So Noah, as Charlie said, Republicans still have the opportunity, in theory, to do something else. And you have this this competition among the the two main uh, competitors for the title something else. And Nikki Haley now, for a couple months, has had momentum again. It's not as though she's nipping at Trump's heels, but she has overtaken DeSantis and a lot of states, tied him in Iowa in the last couple of polls. Still, tends to be a step or two behind him nationally. And you know, of course, they're way, way back. But there, there's just this this hunger. You can feel it; it's palpable. If you ever run into these. These kind of folks, in you know, the last couple of months, donor types are, are really into Haley. They're excited by Haley. And another indication of that is that the Koch Network, Americans for Prosperity, just this morning, has endorsed Nikki Haley.
2: Yeah, I find that very interesting. Uh, there's a temptation to hand wave away what the donors uh, are feeling or thinking or doing because they're so unrepresentative of the Republican base and indeed probably uh, representative of uh, uh, an instinct among Republican voters, primary voters to do what the base doesn't want them to do. Uh, so they're kind of a counter indicator in that sense. I don't, I think that's overblown. I think this is a very interesting endorsement, A, because AFP, Americans for Prosperity, is extremely well healed, extremely on the ground. Uh, and their network will be a profound advantage to the candidate that gets their support. Uh, second, it represents the uh, abdication or rather abandonment of a series of convictions when it comes to foreign policy from the particularly libertarian-minded, Koch-funded um, AFP network. Um, this is the founder of, of the Quincy Institute, which advocates a more responsible statecraft, a less extroverted American presence on the American stage. That's not Nikki Haley. And they subor- subordinated those ideological concerns to a grander strategic objective. And when it comes to Republican donors, or Republican voters, rather, versus the donors, we have a tendency to analyze this race in very ideological ways that I don't think reflect how actual voters think. The assumption is that Nikki Haley can't win the nomination because she can't um, amass enough ideologically populist Republicans who are supportive of Donald Trump softly and supportive of Ron DeSantis softly. But definitely not supportive of the old Reaganite consensus, and will not gravitate towards her campaign. So she has no pathway, even though Ron DeSantis' uh, his mathematical pathway is becoming narrower and narrower. But I don't think that's how these things play out. Momentum is its own force, as you mm-hmm. said, Rich. Momentum begets more coverage, begets more attention, begets more enthusiasm. It's a self-perpetuating machine. And to say that v- all these voters are so uh, ideologically committed to a uh, a series of policy preferences around perhaps trade protectionism or a more uh, introverted presence in the American or the world stage, or it's, is this tax policy or the other? I don't think that gets at it at all. It certainly doesn't get at the Trump phenomenon. Trump doesn't have a series of policy preferences, and his supporters don't seem to care all that much. He has a vague notion that he will seek satisfaction from some of the people who have aggrieved him, who have offended him in some way. And that's about it. And they're along for the ride. Um, And that may prevail at the end of the day. It looks like it's going to prevail at the end of the day. But if Nikki Haley can amass uh, enough enthusiasm and attention from this gradual snowball effect of these donors to roll into a healthy second place, for example, in Iowa, capitalize on a series of upcoming debate performances to uh, continue this momentum, and then enter New Hampshire from a position of strength. Enter South Carolina from a position of strength. You know, if Trump wins all three of these things, it's over. Yes. obviously, but it couldn't. But it may not be over if she were to emerge victorious in one, two, or even three of these contests.
1: Mm-hmm. So, a- a- MBD, I just I go back and forth. I you know I think uh, Iowa, in, in theory at least, is competitive. It's hard to see, as we've discussed a little bit before, for me that this race just never becomes competitive. I mean, that that would be sort of a, a wild outlier kind of race, maybe would speak just to Trump is a de facto incumbent and incumbents, you know, usually don't run in competitive primaries. But then, you know, I look at Trump, he visited this Clemson, South Carolina game and walked out on the field with the the governor and was greeted, you know, not by everyone, of course, in in the crowd. He got some boos when he was arriving outside the, the stadium, especially, but kind of rapturously is like this, this symbol, you know, Noah, Noah used the word phenomenon, and that's the word I always go back to. He's this political and cultural phenomenon. Politicians just typically aren't greeted like that by sports fans. Now, the SEC, that's a Trump conference, you know, would have been different in the the Pac-12, you know, and it was Clemson in particular, so kind of fr- friendly terrain. But still, I, I look at that and I'm like, how, how's someone going to beat that?
3: Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I've always been bullish on I've been bullish on DeSantis for a long time. I'm I'm getting less so because I I am seeing this this rally effect behind Haley, which is very real. Um, and it's just she is a, a candidate that inspires passion among the twenty percent of the party, or maybe larger percent, twenty-five percent, that really finds Trump totally unacceptable. Um, and for whom, you know, uh, rejecting Trump on foreign policy is uh, a high imperative. And um, so, you know, you're basically seeing like a, people just go with, you know, the candidate who reflects the party that they want to see in the future. Uh, and as for Trump celebrity, I'm, you know, I'm more and more, you know, I've been dwelling more and more on that aspect of it that, you um, you know i think one of the reasons for his enduring appeal to republican voters is fundamentally celebrity is and the the political advantage it um they you know voters imagine that it confers on him which is that it makes him um more immune to the normal pressures and of the swamp or the blob or whatever mm-hmm. That would fall on, you know, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis who, you know, for all of their virtues, you know, you know, I think a lot of Republican voters kind of view it as a, as an inherent downside that they're the type of people who have been wanting to be governor or president since they were seven years old, you know, like, um, whereas, you know, Trump has a footing in other sources of power and charisma Mm-hmm. Um, that make him, you know, this more protean and unpredictable and and difficult to handle figure. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm worried that that's that that's the dynamic, and that 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 dynamic is fatal to DeSantis and potentially fatal to the Republican Party, which is that um, you know in,
1: in twenty and twenty four or, or more in twenty
3: twenty four at least, um, you know, in in that. Um, you know, parties have to come up with a consensus candidate, and I think it's very clear that Trump is too hateful to, you know, twenty percent of the party, and that presents a real electoral risk. Whatever the polls say, he does it against Joe Biden, and you know, I think that you know the par- parties as institutions should be searching for their strongest candidate both internally at generating consensus and enthusiasm and externally at their potential to win over voters.
1: Yeah. Charlie ask a question to you. You'd rather be Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley at this juncture. Oh, I don't know. Um,
0: I don't know. I think that's a, I think they are about
1: tied. Okay, fair enough. Noah,
2: I would obviously want to be Nikki Haley rather than Ron DeSantis at this point. Ron DeSantis' position has been deteriorating across the board. Um, we haven't gotten good poll out of Iowa since he got the endorsement of both Kim Reynolds, the governor, and Bob Vanderplatz, is an extremely influential person in Iowa. Um, has, an, has a winning record in all of the contested primaries since 2008 But his candidate never goes anywhere And it doesn't, it's not ent- entirely clear to me where Ron DeSantis' campaign goes after Iowa Nikki Haley does, however, have a pathway after Iowa Into New Hampshire, into South Carolina, even into Nevada And perhaps even into Super Tuesday um, So I would much rather be Nikki Haley at this, at this date November 28th, 2023. That could change tomorrow. MBD.
3: Mm. <laughs> What's the parameter again?
1: <laughs> would, right now, would you rather be Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley? It's not complicated, MBD. Um, It's a, it's a tough I guess one. Nikki,
3: I guess Nikki, because you're she's in the cappered seat of potentially being the only alternative to Trump because she hasn't sunk. She's risen.
1: Yeah.
3: And potentially Trump's VP because she hasn't really criticized him either. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So I've asked this before. Maybe Can I c- just say something briefly yeah, on ahead. that,
2: on the not criticizing mm-hmm. uh, Trump thing. And that is frustrating. And both those candidates are doing the 2016 thing. Uh, DeSantis and Haley are training fire on each other more than Trump, and uh, that's a recipe for death. But her job right now is to appeal to those Trump voters, right? I mean, she's got to, as everybody has said, including you, I think, uh, Michael, she's got to amass some of those populist Trump voters and and convince them to go over to her camp. And Ron DeSantis has to appeal to the non-Trump voters, and he's not made any effort to do that. Are very limited efforts to do that. Only recently has he begun to criticize Trump the man, which we know doesn't necessarily work on Trump voters. What he, what they want to criticize him for, what they want to hear according to the AFP's analysis, among others, is they want to hear electability arguments. And those are trouble with the polling. But Nikki Haley's job right now is to is to amass more Trump support. So how else do you do that? Listen, I understand that this is, I want to hear more criticism of Donald Trump from everybody. But I also get the strategic imperatives.
1: Yeah, so on, on 2016, it, it, you're, you're right that there was a lot of, you know, lobsters in a bowl grabbing at each each other rather than going directly after Trump. But the last couple of months, Ted Cruz was going after Trump pretty hard. Um, so it, it's, it's not it's not true that he just kind of drift, drifted in Iowa, never criticizing Trump. He, he went after him, hammered tongs. And it worked in Iowa, you know, it just did, didn't work anywhere else. So I guess I would, for the first time, I'd rather be Haley. I mean, just because she, she does have forward momentum, which is better than declining or being stalled. I guess DeSantis is, is stalled now. I still think he he's a better match for Iowa. I think Trump really needs to be tripped up in, in Iowa. So I, I think DeSantis would, would have, in theory, the better chance to stop him. But he needs to to get off the dime. Maybe Noah, as as you point out, we haven't seen a lot of polling since the Reynolds and the Vanderplatts endorsement. So maybe that's getting him off the dime. But it needs to happen sometime soon here, right? We're, we're a month and a half from the Iowa caucuses. I was looking back at the 2012 polling in Iowa. And at this juncture, Rick Santorum, who won Iowa that year, was still like two to three. I mean, he was really low, and it wasn't until maybe December eighteenth, if I remember correctly, or something, which
2: was right around Bob Vanderplatz's endorsement.
1: Mm-hmm. Something right around there where he began to get into double digits, but it was a very fluid race. I mean, Newt was in the thirties at some point. Rick Perry was in the thirties when when he first got in. Um, at, Mitt was was leading at at some point and he was leading towards the end and Santorum caught up and and nipped him at the end, but it wasn't this kind of persistent, you know, 20 point lead or whatever it's been in Iowa the way we've seen uh, with Trump. So with that quick plug for NR Plus Digital Subscription Service at NationalReview.com, your way around our meter paywall. Your way if you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads especially the most obnoxious ads, go away and stop distracting you when you're trying to read our content in your way. If you want to, you don't have to. If you want to, to dive deeper into the NR community, you can comment on articles and blog posts. You can get invited to exclusive calls and events with our writers and editors and other conservative figures. It's a great deal all around. And lastly, and most importantly, it's a really crucial way to support a valuable Journalism, we need people to pay something for, not a lot, but just a little bit. So if you haven't signed up already, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. Plus. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you enjoyed time with your family over Thanksgiving.
3: Yeah, it was great. We had um, about 20 people over the house for... Um know just a huge thanksgiving and it was um you know a great time was had by all you know and it's it's great to see um you know that kind of intergenerational changeover you know my um you know uh my kids and my nieces and nephews were all here and you know they're getting to experience um you know family time just the way we experienced it you know 15 20 years going back and it's you can just see it being passed on by contagion, just the, you know, the family way of life. And and that is really rewarding.
1: Awesome. So Noah, you enjoyed man's giving just prior to Thanksgiving. I don't know what this is, but it sounds fun. It is fun.
2: I also enjoy time with my family, but preceding the time with my family is um, something that has become an event where my neighbor has, uh, you know, clears out his garage, which is a very functional garage with a car lift and everything. And clears it out and has all the neighborhood uh, dads over, and we all bring a plate and drink beers and socialize. and it's a really great little community uh, event for uh, the men of the town. and uh, it's 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 rare to see that sort of thing these days. I like it, and uh, I recommend it for anybody who's interested in putting together. Uh, a little community of dads in
1: your neck of the woods. No, you you live this like Tocquevillian existence, like just exemplifying really American do. civil society. It's really, <laughs>
2: really do. It's the amazing. community out here is is absolutely fantastic, and it was kind. Of, it was we just bought into it. You know, it was there before we got here, but um, we've definitely tried to keep it going because uh, it's really a, a source of profound
1: satisfaction for me. So, Charlie, keeping on the Thanksgiving theme, you played some Thanksgiving football out in the yard. Oh, and some is uh, an understatement.
0: Hours and hours. Every time I saw my five-year-old over Thanksgiving, he was looking up at me carrying a football saying, can we go play outside? But it was great fun. I was pretty sore by the Sunday. <laughs> but he uh, he improved palpably. This was fun watching my kids get better. And they started uh, running routes, you would say routes, and getting separation, and of course, calling pass interference every time Mm -hmm. they drop the ball. But the difference between the Tuesday and the Saturday was remarkable.
1: Awesome. So I'll stick with the Thanksgiving theme as well. We went to the local Turkey Bowl game on Thanksgiving morning. The local high school played its rival, the town... Next door, kind of chilly, but uh, packed bleachers, standing room only, and victory for the home team. In fact, it wasn't even competitive, but none of this that we've discussed compares to Sarah's Thanksgiving and last week or so, week or two or so, when she was over in Rome. So Sarah, how was that? You didn't fly yourself, right?
4: <laughs> no, I did not fly myself, though. Every time I told people I was going to Rome, that was the question that I got. <laughs> <laughs> maybe someday. I, I found out. I you'd met a like, pilot. You'd be
1: like Charles Charles Lindbergh going over there. I know, right? Yeah. I met
4: a pilot while I was over there, and I found out it's very expensive to fly in Italy. So I was like, well, maybe someday. But uh, yeah, no, it, it was incredible. The it was just a the whole trip was a wonderful mix of Catholic sites and historic sites, and we just really had the best pilgrimage guide you could ever ask for. a little shout out for the Catholic traveler here. Um, I think I'm finally coming around to really liking red wine. I was also really blessed to venerate the relics of some saints who are super important to me, and my feet still Good. really hurt from all the cobblestones. We walked over 25 miles in two days at one point.
1: <laughs> so Charlie, can you believe that Sarah is just beginning to appreciate red wine?
0: It is the beginning of a great relationship, I can assure you. <laughs>
4: it, it was so fun. I, actually, so I, I saw a huge number of churches, uh, but we didn't even put a dent on the number that are in Rome. Do you guys know how many churches are actually in Rome?
1: How many churches are actually in Rome?
4: Yeah. How, does anybody have a guess?
1: 500. 650. No idea.
4: Charlie?
0: I have no idea. I know how much wine's in Rome.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's
4: close to the amount of churches. Noah's the closest. There are 985. Wow. Yeah. So overall, it was a, an incredible trip, and I, I'm really treasuring all the memories I made there, including the wonderful turkey that I did have on Thanksgiving Day. The restaurant made us a full Thanksgiving meal, and they put oh, a bow. Awesome. They put a bow tie on the turkey.
1: <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Did it you was, have to? You have to prearrange that, or yeah? You ready to go? No, our um,
4: our our pilgrimage guide set this up. This restaurant really loves our our guide, and he told them he just wanted like a really nice meal, and they told him no. We are going to make these Americans a Thanksgiving meal like the the woman who's i think she's a co-owner of the restaurant or something she made cranberry sauce from scratch for us they did all this research they made a turkey like all these other italians who were coming into the restaurant while we were eating it was like this thing they were all filming the turkey Uh as they were coming by it it was just the best thing ever so that's very, very good
1: that's awesome welcome back so with that it's time for our editor's picks mbd what's your pick
3: my pick is Dan McLaughlin's piece "Darkening Skies" for sports journalism. Oh, going it's a take a Just going through a couple of recent um, scandals of sports journalism, whether it's making up stories or making up reporters. Um, the uh, traditional sports journalism is under incredible threat from the the destruction of local newspapers and the business model that sustained. National magazines like Sports Illustrated before it. And um, there's no replacement really in sight. Not yet.
1: Noah.
2: I'm going to go with Jack Butler, The Limits of Pat Buchanan's Post Cold War Prophesizing. It's a very good piece. Um, he takes on some of the praise that, for example, Heritage Foundation has been getting recently for upholding, quote, non interventionist conservative slash libertarian tradition his views, particularly in relation to foreign policy and holding up Pat Buchanan as a model. And he goes back through some of Buchanan's more conspiratorial vision, particularly as it relates to Israel and its, quote, fifth column in Washington, which uh, has uh, abused American foreign policy and moved foreign policy in a direction that is contrary to American interests, according to Pat Buchanan. And um, Butler takes that apart very adeptly. And uh, it's a very good piece. You should read it.
1: Charlie.
0: I am a bit late to this, but there's a piece in the magazine called The Fragility of Civilization by Mike Watson that is pretty alarming, but extremely well done and certainly worth reading. Gives a less than rosy account of the state of the world and of America's place in it. And essentially comes to bury the arrogance that Mike Watson believes Americans fell into after the fall of the Berlin Wall.
1: So I'll give a shout out to our grammarian. National Review always has to have a grammarian writing for us. Brian Garner, who writes a column for the print magazine. This one's titled The Case of the Squirrely Pronouns and is not... Pronouns the way we are always talking about them as part of the trans debate. Instead, it is a typically incisive piece about usage. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National View Podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account this game without the express written permission of National Youth Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Made in Bethlehem College and the Breakfast Podcast. And thanks especially. To all of you for listening, we're the editors. We'll see you next time.